0: Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in.
1: Hey, parents, welcome to another episode of the Wonder of Parenting podcast, a brain science approach to parenting. Here along with Dr. Michael Gray. Michael, always good to have you with us.
2: Good to be with you, Tim.
1: And uh, today we're going to do something we weren't planning on, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, In last week's episode, I referenced an editorial piece written by a uh, retired college professor about classrooms and some of his concerns about them. And uh, after we got done with the podcast recording, we said, well, maybe let's, let's dive into this a little bit. And uh, I think this will be really helpful for parents. It will be helpful for educators who are listening in as well. And uh, so our question is, is today's classroom a therapy session, and should it be? And we're going to look at some of the nuances of that question here in a moment. Um, But we do want to highlight our new sponsor for you. Uh, we introduced them to you last week, and uh, Michael, I I want you to talk a little bit about this because you have a relationship with them that's beyond just the Wonder Parenting podcast. Uh, I know you're going to be consulting with them and so on. It's called the Forge School. I think you said it was it somewhere in Tennessee. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, it's the it's in Benton, Tennessee, which is about an hour east uh, southeast of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it's out out in the wilderness on 55 acres abuts a river. Um, it's, it's a therapeutic boys' school, and um, uh, they're, so, you know, if you know, anyone listening here knows of a boy uh, 13 to 17 who's having issues, uh, could be what what's called developmental trauma from adoption, could be, you know, anger, could be OCD, uh, you know, in, the, in that realm. Uh, any boy, teen boy who's having issues, I would check it out. You can go to the Wonder of... parenting.com page and see and it'll link you directly to the forge school um very leading edge adventure-based so all the cognitive all the educational development you know all all the stuff that you need in a school the social emotional um and also adventure-based so it's 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 really buying into this school buys into the concept that boys and the male brain need a certain kind of education in order to flourish Um, so the forge school on wonderaparenting.com
1: you can look at it so when we look at our question for today, we're making a distinction between um, a therapeutic school, like the one you're talking about, and schools that have become overly therapeutic for all students. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're, we're making a, a very different distinction here today, uh, and I think people will recognize that as we start to talk about our topic for uh, our podcast today. So what, what stimulated this for me is a friend of mine posted this uh, opinion piece that he had seen. This was written by, uh, I'll I'll even give you the source, Joseph Epstein. And uh, this was in the Wall Street Journal, uh, published August 28th of 2020. So that was a few months ago now, if you're listening. And uh, the, the banner headline for this, today's college classroom is a therapy session. And then the subtitle, the tough guys are gone instructors are expected to foster safe nurturing spaces so of course that's written to get your attention which it did Um, but i do want to uh, read just a few quotes and michael i know that you're familiar with what he's talking about Mm -hmm. here so that we can dive into it a little bit Um, he he is listing off some of the teachers from his school where he has just retired who have uh, won some awards in their school because of um, the way that their classes are run and this is according to their students and how the, the, uh, the teachers that seem to be winning these awards now are teachers who are creating nurturing and supportive environments, uh, safe and nurturing environments for learning and debate. And um, so he, his question is, should teaching be primarily about building self-esteem in students, nurturing, and above else, making them feel safe? And uh, he talks a little bit about some of his experiences uh, when he was teaching that, um, you know, it used to be that you'd grade students if they were late or if they uh, did anything wrong, that, um, you know, you would mark them down for that. But now, he says, in this age of the triumph of the therapeutic, uh, such teaching would be prohibited. Students might cry, mothers would call in, shrinks would rub their hands at the prospect of future parents or future patients. Uh, It simply wouldn't be permitted. Uh, because really everything has to be to make sure that the students feel safe. And he talks a little bit about his own teaching style, where he said it wasn't meant to to keep students safe. It was meant to push them, to push them in their learning, to make them think, uh, to make them uncomfortable at times uh, in the learning environment, to recognize that they don't know everything, and uh, to, to teach them how important it is to learn. So you made a few comments last week about uh, some of the things you're hearing from colleagues in the field now. This man's concern is not only what's happening in colleges, but that it might bleed down into elementary and high schools. But uh, let, just give us some general thoughts about that, and then we'll dig deeper into this topic and why it's important for our parents and our educators who are listening today.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up and we're doing this. It's, you know, every, all of us all of us have kids. We all love kids. We want we want their worlds to be safe and and nurturing, and we want to help them feel safe, and um, we want to nurture them. You know, so I think the the what's happened in in uh, both uh, pre K through twelve, and then in college uh, and on into grad school has happened because um, uh, we all, at some deep levels, um, you know, want to respond. To the fact that kids could be victims of trauma, that they could be living through trauma, that that, and we don't want to create trauma for them. We would rather pull out of them, um, you know, a feeling of safety, and that would be the baseline. And if we can get them to feel safe at the baseline, then we believe, you know, that everything else will happen: maturity will happen, um, uh, uh, intelligence development will happen and ultimately they'll become happy adults you know so i i I totally get where all of this came from and um uh this kind of modality that has taken over where it came from and it it has gotten cemented especially by a sort of a, a microaggressions movement which which has said well you know not only could kids be traumatized in their other lives coming into our classrooms and so therefore we need to help them to feel safe but in fact every child uh in some way is traumatized based on their identified group uh and the microaggressions that are perpetrated against that identified group so if that group is is black or brown kids if it's um if it's jews if it's uh it could be actually christians or white people or uh and there's argument about whether white people can have microaggressions against them but But, you know, it could be um, really anyone now who is suffering microaggressions. So now we need to keep the classroom safe against the microaggressions. So those aren't just uh, me calling a black person the N-word, which I actually would put as kind of a form of verbal violence, uh, which should not be tolerated. But a microaggression would be something so subtle, like I as a teacher looked at a black person or a woman or a um, a girl or again, whatever's a trans person, whatever's the identified group. I looked at that person a certain way. And so that person now felt unsafe because I looked at that person in the identified group that way. And so it's now it's gone beyond where I think we all wanted to, you know, say twenty years ago we wanted to help kids who may have been traumatized and and needed a safe space or a safe environment, it's gone beyond that to where literally anything could be a microaggression to any identified person in any identified group. And um, I think at a deep level, maybe that's what this person is getting at. Uh, This writer, Joseph Epstein, what he's getting at uh, is that we moved too much toward this philosophy and we're actually causing harm um because because um it because it is possible that we can create a safe environment for kids who are traumatized we can we can create a trauma informed environment um for those kids without uh saying that 100% of kids are victims and that we are, we as the adult are actually victimizing them by um by trying to focus on resilience with them or focus on fighting obstacles with them or focus on maturity with them or you know to focus on breaking down their natural narcissism which you know a 16 year old and 18 year old it's developmentally natural that that child is going to be somewhat narcissistic and part of the gain, the 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 gain of going to a strong high school college uh, is the professors this and even the peers you know kind of knocking them down a peg and saying hey right you don't you know like you said you don't know it all you're kind of narcissistic here um you need to learn some stuff uh, that that actually i think is very nurturing uh but that's what's become difficult in the environment right now in which any potential look is a microaggression
1: i think back to when my kids were little and growing up, going through school. And, uh, you know, the big emphasis then was really self-esteem. And uh, it was the the era of the participation award. You just do your best. You're not graded for the final outcome. You're graded for your effort. Um, And I'm wondering if, you know, as not that those things weren't helpful, Um, But if now all of those people who are my daughter and son's age at that time who raised on the Care Bears uh, and Barney, if now they're the educators in our colleges and they are if some of this is just the way they were raised.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, definitely a social movement like this happens uh, over a period of of decades yeah, and and it, it does have to do with how kids are nurtured. and the less they're nurtured toward that kind of resilience building that's that I think is also natural to nurturing patterns uh, among human beings. But the as that's taken out and there it's more moved toward self-esteem, like you said and and as competition is taken out of their nurturing, or competition is compartmentalized into athletics, but, uh, or into trying to get a good grade, but there isn't t- debate in classrooms where people can get hurt feelings, and there isn't, you know, that kind of competition. Um, uh, as that stuff has taken out over a period of a generation or two, yes, you do end up with more folks who are um, then gonna recreate that, and then they're gonna justify recreating that by, Whatever, ideal, whatever ideological concepts or talking points they can use. And, and again, I don't think anyone's malicious. I just don't think they realize that they have, that this concept, this concept of microaggressions and the concept that we, we must uh, you know, get rid of competition or only have competition in certain areas, and we must uh, uh, put resilience building lower, put maturation lower, on the scale and put the protection of of obvious self esteem higher. That that has I don't think they've realized how it's infiltrated mm-hmm. and that it's um, actually causing distress because kids are are thirty or thirty five, you know, and they're not adults yet. So yeah. so I I but I think that's harder to measure. So you're right. People will fall back on how they were nurtured, and that's what they'll create without measuring the
1: downside. Uh, Even prior to getting this article, the last several weeks, I've been doing a little writing for our church congregation about a similar theme, and, um, you know, particularly looking right now where we are once again in our political culture and on social media, where, uh, you know, if, if somebody writes something that I disagree with, Um, immediately I just shut that person down. I don't take the time to read it. I don't take the time to listen. No matter what else is said, once I know that they've got that one thing that we disagree with, I've shut them down. And uh, I've been writing about how important it is for us to develop tough hearts. And a tough heart uh, is a heart that is strong enough to absorb differences And to understand that if I disagree with someone, there still may be something there I can learn from, that I don't have to write them off, that the opposite of a tough heart isn't a soft heart. The opposite of a tough heart is a closed heart. And that really, in many ways, we've got a whole culture that runs to safe places today. Uh, You know, if I'm a conservative, I'm going to run to my safe place of Fox News, or I'm going to go, if I'm a liberal, to MSNBC or to CNN, because I don't want to be confronted with anything I disagree with. I just want and this is saying it crudely, I just want my ignorance constantly affirmed rather than stretching me. And uh, I think that at least for for me, and I'm speaking for me, not for you, I see all of this playing out in a a culture that's not able to sit down and listen to each other and uh, to have the resilience to say, okay, I need to listen. I disagree with you, here's why. Or you know what, I disagreed with you, but now I think maybe you've got a point and I need to listen to that. I think we've lost that whole dynamic in our culture.
2: Yeah, and we're suffering for it. We are really kind of, right now, you know, in October of 2020, I think we all do have to look around and say, what is happening to our our culture? And uh, whether you're on the left or the right, on that matter, I don't think it matters. I think left and right all need to look at what's happening to our culture. Uh, so you've made a really important point, and I really love your distinction, tough heart versus a closed heart. Um, uh, fortunately, as people are listening to this, they're moving very soon toward the the election. I think mm-hmm. this one plays right around when the election is going to Could happen. Could be, yep. Um, uh, we, we do these in advance. Folks know we um, tape in advance. But I think this has happened that week. And so that's that's a really, this, this whole season has been a good way to see the downside of, of this because the polarization, all that can ultimately happen is polarization. And so we can't get things done. And like the whole thing that happened with trying to get another stimulus package and the, you know, the Congress with Nancy Pelosi and the Senate with Mitch McConnell and them being so far apart and just deciding that they wouldn't even listen to each other. <laughs> they, yeah. you know, and meanwhile, here's the country where we have where we have um, so much unemployment and so much distress and so much need for help. Uh, but because folks are not tough hearts, they're closed hearts by with your beautiful metaphor, that didn't get done. And that means that means tens of millions of people suffering. Uh, so so for the stuff that we are good at, right, which is which is trying to help people drill down, I think mm-hmm. everyone listening to this, I I guess I would just beg you, do some practical things like go if you're on the left go to fox and watch fox sometimes and if you're on the right go to cnn and watch cnn sometimes and mm-hmm. and that's just in a way metaphorical of what we have to do uh, we have to we we have to s- be resilient enough to see the other point of view because the left is not 100% correct and the right is not 100% correct um, and because no identified group ever is. Um, uh, the identified group, it just identifies itself as a group, conservative or liberal or, or LGBTQ or white or black or you know brown. I mean, whatever is the identified group and the identity politics of that identified group, it is still not correct for everybody. Uh, it is perceived as correct for that identified group. Even within that identified group, there is disagreement, right? you know, um, so, so uh, the, the, the protests that then started becoming riots, you know, uh, in, in cities, the even black people will come out and say, uh, okay, those people who are doing that, that's not us. So that's other people, you know, mm-hmm. who are rioting. And so even within various identified groups, there's disagreement about how to handle things. And that is uh, why we do have to teach our kids, to get back to our kids, we do have to teach our kids from very early on uh, how to be resilient, how to stretch their minds into what other people are saying and doing. And overprotection is dangerous for them. Underprotection is dangerous for them, absolutely. uh, But overprotection is dangerous for them because they simply can't develop a mature self and they will go forward narcissistically into adulthood and they will fail. So what we do early in their lives to deal with this concept is today's classroom therapy session. What we do early in their lives to allow the classrooms to be somewhat therapeutic when needed, Mm -hmm. but then otherwise to be uh, areas of resilience building and initiation and developmental initiation into the next phase of adulthood which is what they really should be uh as well what what we do we do for the future of our children um and and it's going to mean a kind of a pushing back against the concept that self-esteem that immediate self-esteem right now today you know my child crying or not crying today that that's the most important thing we're going to have to get to the point where we say well you know it's okay that my child cried today. I wonder what my child learned from that. Mm-hmm. Um, again, unless the child's being traumatized or bullied, that's a separate category. Right. Um, but, but that's, you know, not really what this article is talking about. It, it, it assumes this writer knows that some kids are bullied and that those kids need help and support. So what we're talking about is the main stuff that's happening where kids are not being bullied. They're not being traumatized. Uh, but the teacher can't even help them build resilience. I'll, I'll say one last thing about this. I think part of what happened here, for us as a culture, uh, is the father being taken out. And mm-hmm. people will say, "Now, what are you talking about? Okay, but let <laughs> me develop it. Let me develop it." We look at the last fifty years of how gradually we've what we've called bi-strategic parenting in our podcast, um, which is a sort of scientific way of looking at how females and males parent, and um, and there's certainly crossover, but. Moms do tend to parent more toward oxytocin, and they do tend to parent more toward uh, wanting to help the kids feel better, you know, more self-esteem building in the moment. And what dads have tended to do is to do more of the pushing, the resilience building, the challenging, the competition. Okay, so all this worked because we had both in the past, and and of course some of the things we had in the past were bad. We had to get rid of them, but but in terms of Developing, helping the child's narcissism to pull back, and the child to mature, um, uh, a lot of that good stuff happened because we had both these parenting styles, and then expanded out multi strategically to grandmas, grandpas, aunts, uncles, you know, and then classrooms, etc. So it worked um, well. The kind of one of the biggest tectonic shifts in the last fifty years is to remove the father, and we can remove the father in certain communities by him just not existing or being incarcerated. Or we can remove the father more subtly in all our communities by just devolving the role of the father and him becoming more like a friend after divorce or the father um, you know, just being gone because he's working so hard, not doing much parenting. All sorts of things have moved the father out. And I think part of what has happened is is um, we don't have the pushback on kids' narcissism that we used to have 50 or 100 years ago. We don't have as much of that pushback and so, um, not everything is about that, but I think right. we should look at how how fathers used to do it, and maybe get back a little of that without without saying the way moms doing it are wrong. No, the way moms do things are great, um, and we used to have a balance. And I think I think now in colleges and in high schools, especially, we can't have fathering. You know, teachers can't be fathers um, by this definition. They need to be more of the kindness, more of that tenderness, more of that, I'm gonna to listen to you and you're feeling sad right now and that's what's important right now and nothing else is important. Um, so metaphorically, at least, our removal of the Father, I think, has affected our social systems in this way. Wow.
1: Uh, I have uh, a follow-up question for you. I just, first of all, wanna say thanks again to uh, our other sponsors who've been with us for quite a while now, and that's the good folks up at the Center of Place of Hope and uh, Greg Jansen, and the great work they're doing up there. All kinds of resources to help you work through some of these important therapeutic, so to speak, issues. And uh, we're not downplaying those at all. We're talking more about how to educate our kids. And so if you ever need anything, that's a good first place to start. The Center of Place of Hope up in mm-hmm. the Edmonds area, Seattle area, and uh, wonderofparenting.com. wonderofparenting.com's got the link for you. So, Michael, as parents think about a... A classroom, or or even teachers, what are some things that you can do to begin to uh, implement resilience building in the classroom along with self esteem building?
2: Well, it's going to have to be challenge, you know, and that means that the school districts and school boards and and uh, and that and that and the parents who elect those people are you know are going to have to uh, allow for challenge and uh, verbal challenge debate. Um, going to have to allow for, you know, second and third chances, quote unquote, for a teacher who says something a certain way that someone doesn't like, uh, you know, and then that gets home to parent. And then the whole thing for a month, the whole classroom environment and the school is in an uproar because this thing was said, you know, we're gonna have to say, okay, uh, some people didn't like the way that teacher did that, but that teacher gets a second chance. That teacher gets a third chance um, because the areas that the teacher, that the parents aren't gonna like is, is just gonna be some element of challenge. In which the teacher pushes back on uh, generally. I mean, there are some bad apple teachers, okay, but again, I'm going to bracket them out. We're talking about something different. We're talking about this environment, and we're the for the resili- for resilience to be developed, we have to have challenge. So I think that would be the bottom line to look at as parents and as teachers. How do we now readjust the system to where every teacher is allowed to challenge, and especially challenge the narcissism of the kids. To help them mature uh, through and beyond that so i i you know i think in the short time we have i would say
1: go back to a challenge environment mm-hmm. does that include competition and winning and losing
2: oh yeah yeah the more you know the our Green institute model schools the schools we work with um um even the ones that are not model schools as they as they bring more competition in and as teachers at a classroom to classroom level you know bring more competition in bring more game theory in so they're doing that because they want to save the boys, and um, and they know that more competition is also good for the girls. But the right. urgency is that they've disaggregated their data, and they can see that the boys are constantly getting in trouble, and the boys are failing grade wise, and their test scores are lower. And so they, so we, when they invite us in to help them, it's generally from that lens. It's because the boys are failing the and the in the aggregate, and the girls are succeeding in the aggregate. Um, so so they bring competition in and then they they find wow you know this is really working it's it's um kids are learning better at the challenge is helping them to learn more and retain more a debate helps them retain more um and it's good for the girls too and then they find well wait a minute we've got these sensitive boys and these sensitive girls now their feelings are getting hurt so we have to manage that and they do they do learn how to manage that because that does have to be managed and dealt with you know a sensitivity is a real thing And um, so we have to to deal with that. Um, But it it gets nuanced and dealt with, and gradually the games continue, the competition continues, and the self-esteem of kids is protected. Um, Every kid gets called on, you know, that's part of the competition. You don't just have two people dominating it. You call on every child over a period of a week. Uh, Groups are set up so that you have a highly competitive with a more sensitive, you know, and and, uh, kid. And so then everyone's succeeding. Uh, you know, so all of these sorts of nuances work as competition is brought back in, and you end up with more resilient kids.
1: Uh, you, you just uh, triggered a memory for me when I was in high school. Uh, we had a, a multi-week game. I think it was in social studies class, um, and it was about the Vietnam War. And the teacher put us into groups. We didn't get to choose our groups, and we didn't get to choose our positions in terms of what we were. In that game, uh, whether we were a, a press secretary for the president or a general or whatever, and um, your your grade depended on uh, your participation in your group and in the classroom, but it was it wasn't necessarily a fair grading. Um, I and I remember when it started, I had raised a question uh, as my in my position, I raised a question, and the teacher walked over and whispered into my ear, "You get." 20 points for that or something like that. Uh, and so I ended up getting a fairly good grade in that process. But some of the other students who had jobs where they couldn't speak up, they didn't do as well in the grading of that process. Now, they had other opportunities throughout the year to improve their grades. But but part of what I think we were learning was, um, you know, life isn't always based on a curve and life isn't always fair. You've got to fight for some of your opportunities and I'm not sure that that would work in a lot of classrooms these days.
2: Yeah, it, it probably wouldn't work in that way it was laid out. But it's right. still a good thing to use. And then all all that has to be adjusted in it is that the that uh, well, a couple things could be adjusted. That that kids constantly alternate the positions so right. that everyone gets a chance to be in all the positions. And a good thing about that is each child will learn something from each position the child is in. Um, uh, and then the second thing that can get nuanced is that uh, if there isn't a lot of time, the teacher still can call on everybody. So right. that does give every everyone a chance to participate. Um, the the game itself, like the mock UN, right, or mock yep. politics, like you did, uh, that's still great. And I know some schools still do it, and they just make these adjustments. So that's a good thing to do. And it's and you're right that one of the big messages of of school is and and of of life and growing up is that things aren't fair and they may not be fair right now in the short term but we're going to make it fair in the long term Mm -hmm. and so so that goes to what you said that in you know a month later that child got another chance to raise the grade in a different way and so we definitely want to keep that in mind with kids you know we we don't want it to be constantly unfair for one child and i think right now you know when we have the 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 debates we're having in terms of race, which are very important debates and systemic racism and that kind of thing. What we are what we are working on is making sure that there's ultimate fairness for every every human being. Right. And there's ultimate fairness um, for everyone in a school system, since that's what we can control as a school system. Um, and that's that is a good thing. Uh We do need to make sure there's ultimate fairness for every child in the system. Um, uh, But at the same time, we can get that ultimate fairness without buying into the concept that every single thing that someone does is a microaggression. So we can actually accomplish the goal we want without getting kind of sucked into this um, miasma that we're in right now.
1: If there's the one word and it comes up over and over again from you, it's resilience, 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 resilience. And again, it's not because we don't care about self-esteem, but there's just a lot of that out there right now. But it's resilience, building kids who can learn, building kids who know how to fail, who know how to succeed, because both of those are skill sets. And, um, And know how to navigate their way through a world that may not always treat them the way they think they deserve to be treated um you know a lot of jobs you got to work your way up a lot of jobs you've got to make decisions that will cause you to lose some sleep at night and um that it, it takes resilience to live through those kinds of things
2: yeah yeah and i'll i'll end by saying that that the tectonic shift that's happened i think in the last 50 years is maybe a bit of forgetfulness about about what our job is as adults in the lives of children um I I see our job, you know, that this means parents, teachers, grandparents, everyone who's in the lives of children. I see our job as equal parts, what is traditionally called um, nurture, uh, empathy, equal parts that and resilience building. So 50-50, yep. because I think ultimately our job is to build an adult. That's mm. why we are here. Um, We're not necessarily here to make sure every moment of our child's life is comfortable. Um, We as adults already have the brain developed enough to understand what the child's future is. (laughs) As you've noted, the child's future is difficult. So our job is to raise an adult. And if we don't have 50 parts resilience building or 50% resilience building, I don't think we raise that adult. And so in a sense, we have not done our job. We've maybe done 50% of it, but I don't think we've done the other 50%.
1: Part of me thinks we probably need a whole podcast on what is an adult in in today's world. Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) This Uh, is open a Pandora's box here. (laughs) Yeah. But we'll do something else next week. We'll get back to our listeners' questions. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, listeners, and thank you again to the Forge School and to uh, the Center of Place of Hope. You can learn everything that you need to about our sponsors and our products, wonderofparenting.com, wonderofparenting.com. If you enjoy these podcasts, please share them with your friends, and we will be back with you next time. Thank you, everybody. Have a good week.